Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 258. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 258 you're listening to. My guest today is Jason Livermore. Jason is a producer, engineer, and co-owner of Blasting Room Studios located in Fort Collins, Colorado. He has worked with bands such as Rise Against, No Effects, and The Descendants. And we are going to have a conversation here shortly. So, Jason Livermore coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the holidays. Yes, the holidays are upon us. Um, This is the time of year, November, December, when things kind of wind down. Work thins out a bit for some of us, for some of you. uh, Maybe the work isn't thinning out, which is great for you. I applaud that. Usually we all kind of retreat to our friends and family and eat a lot, drink a lot and just generally relax, gain a few pounds. For those of you that uh, during the rest of the year, you're working in the trenches, you're doing your thing, and you're working in the various disciplines of audio, my thought for you to think about, because of course, you know, this is just my opinion, which we need to take with a grain of salt, is to utilize those holiday times, obviously to relax and be with the friends and family I mentioned, but also to carve out maybe a little bit of time to take stock of what has happened with your audio business in the last year and what you want to happen in the next year. You know, I always look forward to this time period because I have new revelations of things I want to do, either with my audio business or the podcast or, you know, whatever it is I'm planning for world domination <laughs> next year. And um, I really enjoy that, that downtime because it, it helps me think with a clear head. So take stock of what has happened over the past year. Think about what you want to do in the upcoming year. And, you know, it could be just be a matter of thinking about it and not really acting. Uh, for some of you, maybe uh, you need to a- approach it a little bit differently. might be uh, necessary to bust out the laptop and maybe take some notes and, you know, plot what it is you're going to do. There's a million things that you could do as well. You could spend your time looking at how you deal with your clients, how you communicate with your clients. And there's various bits of software out there for productivity that can aid in that. Maybe this is the time to investigate those pieces of software. Maybe you are planning a big upgrade in the studio computer to, you know, whatever, the next version of whatever DAW it is you're using and you've been holding off and maybe that's the time to do it. Um, Maybe you're getting out of a studio And this is the time to kind of rethink, now what? You know, I've certainly been there, and I think many of you have been there as well. So maybe this is the time to kind of rethink what's next, right? Just carve out a little bit of time. doesn't have to eat up all your holiday time, but, you know, maybe 30 minutes, maybe an hour a day where you just sit in a focused state and think what it is you're going to do. And maybe you are somebody who has a day job 
and you're thinking about ramping it up a bit in the audio world and you need to figure out how that's going to work financially or you need to figure out how you're going to maintain that day gig and still ramp it up and still maintain a family and you know do all the other stuff that comes with life point is use that holiday time wisely it's a obviously you want to use it to relax but there is some time in there that i think you can get some uh quality uh planning done for whatever it is you're going to be doing in the next year maybe you've had some failures or mistakes over the past year or 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 some victories i hope analyze those take stock of what has happened just ask yourself in any given situation did you handle yourself well did you treat your your clients in a professional manner if you had somebody that was unhappy why were they unhappy this is the time to look at all that stuff and figure out what can i do better how can i better serve my clients and how can i make a better living and is there any systems or anything that you could change so those are all things that can be done over the course of the holidays so i'll just say happy holidays to you for those of you in the U.S., uh, if you're hearing this fresh, this comes out the week of Thanksgiving, so happy Thanksgiving to you. I certainly have a lot to be thankful for, and I hope you do too. So cheers to you all. Don't eat and drink too much, and get some stuff planned. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. 
If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Jason Livermore here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jason, thank you for uh, taking the time to meet with me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. You are at the Blasting Room, a studio located in Fort Collins, Colorado. Where is that in relation for the audience who's not that familiar with all the smaller cities around Colorado? How does that relate to Denver? So I think it's about 60 to 65 miles north of Denver. Oh, okay. So it, it takes about an hour straight up the highway. It's got a college here, Colorado State University. So, okay. So I don't know. I don't know how many people live here now. 150,000, something like that. It's kind of a small, medium-ish town. Is the Blasting Room like the main thing in town for a studio or are there a bunch of other studios? I would say that we were the main thing in town for the studio, but there are a few... Others that have kind of come and gone or maybe some that I'm not aware of as well. I kind of, I hunker down in this place and I do, and it's like I kind of lose track of what's going on besides what I'm doing sometimes. <laughs> the older I get, you know, earlier, back in my earlier days, I knew everyone in town and I would go out to, you know, the bars and the shows and all that all the time. I knew everything, but now I'm kind of, I've been married for like 17 years now and I work a lot. I just get them like, have you heard of this guy? No, I haven't heard of him. You know, I'm, so, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's amazing what happens when you hunker down and focus on work and the world can pass you by for better or for worse. Yes, totally. <laughs> As we started the call, you were telling me you grew up in San Ramon, California. Yeah, yeah. So I was born in Portland, Oregon, and I moved to San Ramon when I was four. And I lived there until I was about uh, 17, I think. Then I moved back to Oregon. And then I went up to Tacoma, Washington to go to college. So I went to college at University of Puget Sound. Oh, wow. So I did all that before I moved out here. What did you study there? Business marketing with an economics minor. Very, wouldn't you, would you, I mean, I know we're, we're, we're giggling, but <laughs> yeah. would you agree that that's actually useful in being a studio owner? No, it, it it is useful for sure. I always joke with people, I went to college, you know, for something that's totally unrelated to what I do, but it is business. That's the, the reason why I chose business because I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I was like, I think I could use this, you know, no matter what. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. Did recording show itself to you as a possibility in your youth or did that come later? It kind of came around when I was in college. I mean, I started playing drums when I was like maybe 12 years old. So I was kind of in a couple of bands in high school. I recorded ourselves, you know, in the garage with one mic kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really know what a studio was back then. But then I went to college and I was in some more bands and we went to a studio and I was like, holy shit, this is the <laughs> coolest thing ever. You know, yeah. like, what is this place? This is awesome. And And then the guitar player for the band I was in goes, oh, well, I have a four track if you want. I'm like, what's that? He goes, you know, it's a smaller version of what we just did. And I was like, oh, really? So he gave that to me and I started recording all of our practices and just just dove in, you know, bought like the home recordist guide and just totally learned on my own and recorded practices. And that's kind of how I got in to recording. So I guess I was around 20 or something then. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, when did you make the way out to Colorado? Why did you come to Colorado in the first place? 
So I was in a band in college and we had a manager and his name was Don Robertson. He's the president of Century Media now, but he was also managing Bill Stevenson's band All. And so Bill would come out to Seattle where we, we were living to make records or on tour. And so Bill and I ended up meeting and he would stay at my house with the band, like if they were on tour. So I met him like that. And those guys were living in Brookfield, Missouri then. And they had got signed to Interscope. And him and the other guy, the guitar player in the band, Stefan Egerton, they would record bands on their own at different studios. So they were like, okay, well, instead of, they took their big advance instead of spending it on a studio, they decided to build the blasting room and move to Fort Collins to do it. And so Don, who was the manager of both of our bands was like, hey, I'm moving to Fort Collins. You want to come out? And I was, I was actually selling beer for Miller Brands after college, which at the time was a fantastic job, but I was 22, 23 and everybody else was like 40 back then. And I was like, look at all these old guys selling beer. I don't, I don't want to be the old guy selling beer. So I'm like, sure, let's go. I paid off all my bills, packed up all my crap and drove out and just kind of went for it. That's how I ended up here. Interesting. And I think this is a key thing too, at least it is for me, for my music history. But just to mention that not only did Bill play in, in all, but he also played in Black Flag and The Descendants. That's correct. So you guys have that that musical background and heritage together. So you came out and did you immediately join Bill at the studio or did that come later? Yeah, immediately, like the first day I showed, well, I came out to visit the place in the summer, right when those guys showed up and, you know, this building was an empty kind of, it's not a warehouse, but a, it was a big empty building. And then I came back two months later and they were like, the build was halfway done. And I kind of helped out a little bit with the final touches of that. But Bill was, they were tracking their record pummel for Interscope. And so they tracked the drums because the studio wasn't quite done yet at Arden in Memphis. And mm. so we were kind of finishing the studio up while they were doing that. And they brought it back and then we finished the rest here. But basically I had limited knowledge but I, a kind of a high aptitude for learning. I, I was really just ready to learn, do whatever it took. So I would just kind of hang out all the time and do whatever they wanted me to do to figure out what was going on. So who out of the, the group of you that were at the blasting room, who was the more experienced engineer out of the group at the time? I'd say that Bill and Stefan were probably equally as experienced, but Bill had maybe been doing it a little bit longer but Bill sort of has always kind of acted in the traditional producer role, per se, and less of the engineer role. He can do everything, but m more so if there's someone else like who can engineer, he'd probably prefer that. So Stefan did most of the engineering back then. What is the aesthetic of the blasting room, if that's even a relevant question to, to where you're at? Because I ask, because I love the logo with the devil horns <laughs> yeah. and, 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 the, and the bird. <laughs> Yeah, on the bird, right. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to include that audience in, in the uh, show notes in some capacity. Or you could click over to the Blasting Room and check it out. But with that in mind, what is the aesthetic? Well, you mentioned that Bill was in Black Flag and the Descendants and all, all obviously old seminal punk bands, right? So there's some of the aesthetic. It's like a DIY ethic as much as like that's how punk rock used to be. You know, you can book your own tour and whatnot. This was like hmm. build your own studio Let's do everything ourselves. So there's obviously a lot of like errors made along the way, you know, <laughs> doing everything yourself, trying to learn from books or whatnot, because the internet really wasn't a thing 
back yeah. when we started. We've always accepted whoever really wanted to come in the door, but the majority of the people for the first, I don't know, 10 years of this place was probably mostly all punk rock because of Bill and Stefan and the bands that he was in and had recorded in the past. So, As far as the choice of setting up shop in Fort Collins, I guess I'm not putting it together. What What is it about Fort Collins that was attractive to you all? Right. So those guys originated in L.A., and... I think L.A. was becoming too expensive for them to live. And so I believe it was Bill's father who had a house in Brookfield, Missouri, which was like a town of like 400 people or something crazy small. So those guys were always on tour, like nine months out of the year. So they didn't want to spend a bunch of money on like a home base. So they moved to Brookfield and they did that for a bit and decided, hey, you know what? This is too small. We can't do this. So Fort Collins was kind of like an in-between size city for them people-wise and sort of, it's not exactly centrally located in the country, but more so. Mm -hmm. And they had been through town a handful of times and met a bunch of people that they liked and liked the vibe of the town. And Bill was dating a girl who lived here at the time. So they decided to all move here. And then I followed suit. Yeah. Well, that, that does help too. As you say, it's not exactly in the center of the country being in the mountain time zone, but it's kind of out there so that it's accessible by a number of states, including California. Texas. Oh, yeah. And possibly along the way as you're maybe touring back and forth between East and West Coast. But as far as music scene is concerned, is there a music scene there in Fort Collins? There's a great music scene here now. Yeah. So there's a lady who lives in town named Pat Stryker. She didn't start the music scene, but she's a billionaire. <laughs> I think her grandfather invented the Stryker bed for hospitals. So she <sighs> But she she loves music, right? She loves it. She's been putting on these massive, huge festivals in Fort Collins every summer. And she just built a huge, like a 900-person venue in town. Great new venue for music. And she's also got this thing called the Music District, which she renovated like two sorority buildings on next to the college and turned them into a radio station and practice places and like anything related to music, anything. You could just go in there as a musician and like they have classes all the time on all kinds of different stuff, how to record yourself, how to write songs, how to do this, how to do that, everything. So the town is kind of really into music. Yeah. So there's a great, a great scene here. And there always was a great scene here, but now it's like a little bit more formal, I guess, if you will. Wow. That yeah. can, that just makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? Oh, it's great. It's totally cool. Yeah. Because without that, that ecosystem of the music scene, the other things can't follow as a result. That is very true. <laughs> it gives uh, bands a place to come to when they're on tour. It gives bands who live there a place to go and play. And yeah, I'm a big ecosystem. As my audience knows, I say a lot. It's I think it's really what shapes places like Nashville right. or Los Angeles. Right. Obviously, Fort Collins is not nearly like that. But I mean, there's a lot of venues and a lot of bands that play here. So, And pretty much everybody who works at the studio as a musician and has been or is in a band. So we kind of have our fingers out there and in the community. Yeah. Interesting. So you and Bill are owners. Are there any yes. other owners then? It's just us. So originally it started out with the band all. They okay. were the owners. And then sort of as time went on, two of the guys in the band never, they weren't engineers at all. So they kind of got bought out shortly thereafter. And it was just Bill and Stefan. And then Stefan decided he was going to move to Oklahoma with his wife because I believe his wife had family there. So after he moved, Bill bought him out. And it was just Bill. 
but I know we don't talk about gear lust too much on this, but <laughs> I had so much gear lust that I ended up, I don't know, over the course of like eight years or something, accumulating more gear than the studio had on its own. And at a certain point, Bill was kind of like, uh, hey, dude, you own more than I do, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> even though he was the owner. So you're like, you should become an owner too, you know, you know. I think it was maybe 10, 2010 or 11, somewhere around there that I became an owner. Okay. With him, yeah. Now, how would you categorize your your partnership with Bill in this case and for this studio? How how do you all function? I, I think every studio that depends on a partnership like that, there's going to be some particular things that make the whole thing tick. What works for you guys? So originally, you know, Bill's kind of always been the boss, if you will, even though we're like partners now. He still sort of operates as like the the figurehead of sorts and maybe make, I don't want to say makes all the decisions, but like, you know, he's kind of, he's still top tier there. And, but there's like a handful of us. There's me, there's Jonathan, who you've dealt with, and there's two other engineers here, Andrew Berlin and Chris Beeble. So we almost act as a democracy in a sense, if we want to like make decisions about anything, we kind of have a, like a little quasi meeting or a email or whatever, you know, and see what everybody thinks and, and make decisions like that. It's not really like, like a hierarchy where we're deciding everything. We we include all those guys in, in decisions because they do a lot of the work and keep the place going. Bill, over the last maybe three years or so, he's been touring more with his band, The Descendants, mm -hmm. and recording less. So he doesn't show up to the studio quite nearly as much as he had in the past, where him and I were slaves to the building. Do you all make it as far as, and I, I'm not going to ask you specific numbers here, but how does it work? Do you all take a salary or is it just like, hey, you do the work, you get the payment as long as we pay the, the mortgage or the rent or whatever? Right. So it's pretty much always has been and still is just paid per project. Each guy, whoever, whatever they're doing, you know, they get their engineer fee. So Bill and I don't really take like a royalty or a payment from the studio. We just pay ourselves from the work that we've done and the studio gets the money and we're the money that the studio makes kind of just keeps the place going, you know, fixes all the gear or in the last handful of years, we've been lucky. We just built two new studios and that cost us a little bit of money. So the studio paid for that. But yeah, so we I just see. pay ourselves from working. So a client comes in and the money that they pay, the engineer gets their fee, but the studio gets its cut as well. That's correct. Yeah. So we've got four rooms here now. Each room has its own rate. And so the depending on which room you're in, costs a different amount. Mm. And so, yeah, so the studio will take that and the engineer, depending on who does it, gets his fee. So I guess then personally, you don't go into debt for gear, for buying gear yourself. Not anymore. <laughs> not, not anymore. Not, not anymore. No, before I was an owner, I was probably spending about like 30 grand of my own personal money on gear a year. And so I definitely got into debt doing that until I kind of, I circulated through so much stuff to figure out what I liked, what I didn't like, and I would sell the stuff I didn't like. So, but eventually once I became an owner, like the studio, if I want to buy gear, the studio buys it, not myself personally. So I don't have to worry too much about that, but I don't, I don't feel like I buy nearly as much stuff as I used to. And the decision for the studio to buy a piece of gear not only has to go through the approval process with you and Bill, but I'm sure you run it by the other engineers to say, what do you guys think if we bought X compressor, Mike Pre, whatever? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Everybody, I don't want to say like, if I really want to get something, like I'll take everyone's opinion into account, but I might not 
if, you know, I might say, I'm going to get it anyways, but <laughs> I would generally, you know, I would generally be like hoping everybody wanted to use that piece or it sort of helped everyone out somehow. So your attitude with relation to debt and gear and money has evolved over the years, I assume. It has. I don't want to spend nearly as much money on gear as I used to. And are you a saver or a spender? I'm probably more of a spender. I'm <laughs> yeah, probably more of a spender. I'm not in debt anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I've got all I've got most of my debt taken care of, so that feels pretty good and once you do get all that taken care of for the most part, uh-huh. You're like, "Oh wow, this feels great." And you don't you're not in a real big rush to to, you know, fill up your credit cards anymore. Oh, God. <laughs> you know. Let's talk about mentors for a second. I'm sure to some degree Bill has been a mentor. Are there other mentors of note? Right. So I would say, yeah, originally Bill and Stefan were definitely mentors. They they showed me how they engineered and their aesthetic, what they liked. And I sort of mimicked that for a bit. I would say my first biggest and still main influence is Andy Wallace. So the Descendants, they did a record in 96 and Andy Wallace mixed it. So I got to go out with those guys and watch him mix it. And that completely changed my life as an engineer watching him do that record and changed the studio's life too because he was mixing on an SSL and we had a Mackie geez what was it a 32 by 8 or something Mm -hmm. and so that record they had some money to do it as well and Bill was like okay if Andy Wallace can mix our record on this SSL and not use any outboard gear we should get one of those boards and we won't have to buy anything. We could just use the board, you know, and we can make great records. So we got the SSL after working with Andy. But after working with Andy, I watched him for like 10 days. Just, I literally sat at the end of the console, just like a fly. Now looking back on it, I'm like, man, if somebody was sitting at the end of the console and I mix it, I'd be like, get the hell out of here. But <laughs> he was, he, he is an absolute gentleman amazing human, amazing mixer. So I kind of took what he did and mimicked it and I'm still, still doing that. So he was, he's my greatest mentor, I would say, even if he didn't know it, you know, but I did get a chance to work with him again. When was this? 2015, we did a band called A Day to Remember and he mixed it and I went out there and he's got to be real close to 70 now, but he's still good. And he's, yeah, it was great. He's my best first kind of second mentor. After that, I, I kind of got into uh, Steve Albini's stuff. Mm-hmm. I really liked the way his records sounded, very natural and whatnot. So I ended up going out to his studio in 98 with a band that I had done some demos with and kind of just went as like a, I don't know, a buddy. You know, I wanted to watch. Right. And uh, I was kind of sitting on the back of the couch. I was just sitting on the couch, you know, and I had done their demos and yeah, I would be like, hey, Steve, uh, because he doesn't offer any opinions, really. That's kind of his deal. It's like, hey, Steve, I think those guys were out of tune, you know, on that last one. Maybe we could check the tuning in. He'd be like, oh, guys, Jason thinks that you were out of tune, you know, kind of like giving me the roll in his eyes kind of deal. And he kept kind of giving, you know, look at, looking at me like, who the, who the fuck is this guy? You know, like, and finally, like, we were trying to, I don't know, we were trying to figure something out. I'm like, Steve, can I play the demo I did? You know, and I put the demo and we played the demo and he kind of went, oh, okay. And he was immediately nice to me after that. <laughs> you got my, my demo was really good. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, then he let me record some vocals and whatnot, but th- he was, that was a great learning experience as well. Watching all that, just kind of seeing 
put into action the things that you'd hear on records and go, how the hell is he doing that? So that was cool. That was kind of another trick in my belt, if you will. I think in 2006, Bill and I made a record with a band called Puddle of Mud. Yeah. And we did a, we did a lot of it at Oceanway Studio. And Jack Joseph Puig was the executive producer slash A&R guy. And he actually mixed the record. So we spent probably two months with Jack working on that record. So I got to learn a lot about Jack's way of recording and mixing. So that was total learning experience as well. Very informative. Yeah, very informative. And then another guy we've worked with a bit is Chris Lord Algae. He's mixed four albums for a band called Rise Against that we've worked with. Oh, yeah. He, so I've been to his place. We've been down there four times. And I just pick, you know, I don't pick his brain, but I, I, I look at the console. I look at things. You figure it all out. And so all those, all those different top level guys I've taken pieces from and the things that I like and don't like and try to use that into my own style. Wow. I mean, those are some real... They're the top level guys. They yeah. really are. And, to, and that that observation, that ability to uh, be the voyeur really, I'm sure, impacted you in a huge way. Totally huge. Yeah. Each time I would work with one of these main guys, I would kind of, I would emulate their style for a year or two or something till I kind of went, eh, I really don't want to sound just like them. Or you pick out the good things, the things that are like, that's really cool. I really like this thing. And, yeah. You know, and you sort of implement it into, into the way that you work. Exactly. That's what I did. Yeah. Uh, that can be a danger, right? To try to spend too much of your time emulating somebody, but at the same time, that can yield the result of, actually, this is how I'd like to do it. Right. You know, you, you definitely don't want to be a copycat, you know, and be like, oh, he's the guy who sounds like this guy. You don't want that. But if you can listen to those great records and go, I know how he did that. I watched him. So if I want that sound, I can get that sound. But I want my own sound. So I'm going to take just the things that are like really cool that you learn from them that do a specific thing and try to hodgepodge it together, I guess. You know, it's just, it's not really conscious, but that's looking back on it. That's kind of what happened. I want to pick your brain a bit about production. What is it that makes you want to produce a band? Great songs, really. Something that makes me want to go, okay, I'm going to hang out with these dudes for a long time, for many hours, and I got to be entertained. You know, I got to be having a good time. That's kind of the biggest thing. The other thing is like, do you get along with these people? Hopefully both. But one or the other is great. You know, like these guys are amazing to hang out with. So they're not the greatest players, but who cares? Like, I love them. You know, <laughs> there's those two things generally. And do you have a method of dealing with the various personalities that bands can present to you? You never know what you're going to get, right? But yeah, that's for sure. So how do, how do you manage the different personalities? Do you have a, a method that you go in to make sure that you keep everybody at peace and happy with each other? I don't know if there's a method. It's just kind of like you sort of read people, you know, you, you can kind of tell pretty quickly, oh, this guy, he did the demos. Okay. He's in charge. He knows what's going on. Like, so you kind of refer to him, oh, this guy, he has no clue. He just wants to do this and we'll get his stuff done. I'm not like discounting any band member like that, but you kind of read them in their role and sort of cater to what you think they need. Some people don't, they don't care about the sounds or they just want to get their part done and go home. And you do that. And other guys want to have their fingers in everything. This is what we did on the demo and this is how I did it. Blah, 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 blah. And to a certain point you appease them. And then at, after a bit, you kind of like, you have to determine if that's a detriment or not to the process. You came to me for a reason, like I can't do everything you did or else you would have just stayed home and did it yourself. So you kind of figure out if you need to be the leader or you need to be firm with people or you don't, you know, you need to like 
be kind to them and let them be artists and let their thing out, you know, so there's no real method. It's just <laughs> play it by ear. You, you got to play it by ear. Yeah. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. Interesting. Uh, you know, and there's always a, a guy or gal in the band that is really into recording, but you need them to focus on playing their parts and playing their role in the band, but they kind of want to get into the control room and kind of be at your side. Yeah, that happens. How do you handle that? Well, you let them do that for a bit. And I think... Because you can end up learning from them as well. Sometimes these demos are phenomenal. So I would just try to take what I can from them. And then if I feel like they're in impeding progress, sort of just show them I have 25 years of experience. I know what you want. I can get us there. I can lead us there. Let me do this. It depends. Sometimes they may lose interest and you can get on your way. Sometimes you may have to sit down and have a talk with them. Look, you came to me for a reason. Let <laughs> me do my thing. And it, it's, I'm not saying this happens every time for certain. Every situation is different, but you just have to read it and give them what they want, but still keeping the, the momentum of the project. Yeah, that's, that can be a challenge. It can be a challenge, yeah. How do you deal with the business aspects of producing? Maybe the band's got a manager. Maybe they don't. What are your What are your methods there? Again, is there a method? Fortunately for me, I don't have to deal with that too much. Like Bill has always kind of been the business guy, even though I have the business degree. He's <laughs> been the guy to take care of the majority of that because he's done it for all the bands he's been in. So he usually deals with that stuff. But I mean, if you mean by like budgets and whatnot, every situation is different and you kind of just have to figure out who's paying pretty much who's paying, how much money they have, what the scope of it is, how how much you like the project. Everything's, it, it's always different. Because some people have hard, fast rules where they say, oh, I don't I don't talk about money with, with the artist, but that's not always possible. Yeah, because sometimes the artist is like the manager. They're their own thing. No, you talk with money with the artist. You just have to come to an agreement. What do they have? Who's in charge? You know, some people don't have any money, but yeah. you love their stuff. You totally love it. Be like, I will mix your thing for free because I love it. That doesn't happen very often, but it has, you know? And then sometimes you get major label gigs where it's just massive money and you're like, is this possible? This seems stupid, you know, but they're paying it. And so it's it's the full spectrum. Yeah. Do you get points on records or is that a thing of the past? We still get points on records. There's only a couple bands that we have done who actually have recouped or, you know, made enough to make it worthwhile and the ones that have, uh, I'm very thankful for. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I never expected to ever get any, I didn't get into this for money at all. Like when I first started working here, I was making like maybe $10,000 a year, maybe. I met my wife and she goes, you need to get a raise or you need a better job. You know, <laughs> you, you know? and I was like, oh, geez, really? 
okay. You know, so I had to go into Bill, who was my then boss and be like, my girlfriend says I need a raise. You know, I think I was making 12 bucks an hour or something. He goes, how's 15? Oh, great. So I, I, I st- started out and it was just, I just was, I didn't care about money at all, but we got lucky. The more records we did, the more people started coming, the budgets got bigger and all that. And like we were just talking about the royalties. Now I have royalties on stuff. And so I make a, a decent living from all that. And how, like, when it comes to, has Bill played a part in that aspect of it for you? Which, uh... The getting, you know, points and, and how... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. He's he, he's kind of more in charge in that stuff. Like, in the traditional producer role, sort of manager. Because, I mean, it was his studio to start off with. So, I would always sort of defer to him. He'll ask me, you know, hey, so-and-so wants to give us this, or this is the budget, or this is what they have. What do you think? And I'll be like, yo, that's great. That's cool. Or, nah, I don't know about that. So, definitely, he's kind of more the leader in that regard. Personality-wise, are you guys very different? Is that why he kind of ends up being the person who deals with that business aspect? I mean, we're not we're different, but we're not terribly different. I think either one of us could do it. Okay. It's just that he's been doing it for so long. You know, like he was always like the leader of the descendants, like, right. you know, booking the tours. He was the manager. He's always been the guy in charge. And it becomes, you know, the older he gets the less that kind of is a thing. He's like, let things go and let other guys at the studio make way more decisions. But yeah, he does it because he's done it for so long. Has there ever been a time in your career that you thought about leaving? Leaving like Fort Collins or leaving the studio business? <laughs> leaving the, No, leaving the studio business, getting out of recording, get out, getting out of music and I don't know, going back to selling Miller beer. Right, right. And there's plenty of beer here to be sold. Not really. I mean, I guess maybe in the very back of my mind, it's popped up, but I don't think so because I enjoy it so much. My wife is a high school teacher and she comes home from work and she's always pretty stressed out. And and she's like, you son of a, you're so lucky. You have the dream job. And I'm like, honey, it's still work. You know, like I still got to go to work 10 hours a day sometimes. And she goes, but you love it. And I'm like, yeah, I guess you're right. I do love it. So I haven't really... I mean, the thought may have popped into my mind, but it's never been even remotely close to acted upon or planned out or anything. Because, I I mean, I love what I do. The business obviously has been changing dramatically in the last five, 10 years. So changing the way that I work, the, the different hats that I'm wearing at the studio obviously is a thing now. And I'm getting used to like doing different things that I wouldn't have as much in the past. Obviously, the budgets have probably shrunk a bit. The budget apps, uh, yeah, for sure have, have shrunk a lot, but it's, it's more so the, the sort of amount of recording or the style of recording, if you will, that I think has changed more for me. Like I would say in the middle two thousands, Bill and I would be making maybe like seven to 10 records a year, spending like three weeks to a month on each one of them, kind of back to back to back to back to back. And then sort of after, I don't know, 2010, 11 or something, people would be coming in and doing EPs. And I would be like, EP? What's an EP? Nobody does an EP. That, and that took a little bit to get used to. And now it's like two or three songs or one song. Or now it's like people come in to record drums and they, they do the rest at their house. And then they come back and they go, we want you to mix it. Or they don't record at all and they want you to mix it. Or like now some of the bands that I've worked with who've come here a bunch, they have the, got the guy in the band and he's watched us record. And now he's good enough to do it all himself. And then now I'm just doing a lot of mastering. So I've kind of started, I've done like every job in this business, maybe not a manager, but 
the, the workload is, I want to say the workload's a little easier than it mm. used to be with the internet. Less people show up, you get to work by yourself more. And it's a little bit, it's definitely different. It's more mastering and mixing for me and than recording in the past, which I feel is fine for me. It's like less stress dealing with the less recording I have now, dealing with all the personalities like we were talking about before. I'm going through the very same thing. It's yeah, you it's know, <laughs> oh, you want me to, ma oh yeah, I can master your record and you're not going to show. Oh, great. Yeah. That's pretty much the deal. I would say the majority of my time spent now is probably mastering. You're at peace with that, I assume. And do you think that's a result of getting older? I think it's all of that because we got a couple younger guys in the building who get, they do the majority of the recording now. It's probably because they're more in touch with like what's happening with the current style of music. And maybe, you know, the band members are younger and they want to hang out with younger dudes or also they cost less than we do. So they record the most and I end up mixing and mastering. And I've recorded for so long and spent so many 70, 80 hour work weeks doing that. After recording forever, I was kind of like, I just want to be a mixer, you know, and I never made a conscious decision to be like, turning people down. It just sort of happened that way. People wanted me to mix more than record. So I, I did that and I started mastering. I think it was in 1998 I started mastering and it was never like a focus of mine or th something that I thought I was going to end up doing. But every year I do more and more mastering. I do a lot of mastering, probably 15 to 20 projects a month, especially since like two years ago, Jonathan, he built me a new mastering room. And so I do that a lot and I actually love it. <laughs> yeah. So the the mastering room is one is one of the four rooms that you're accounting. That's correct. Yeah. So we've been in a building since 94 and we've always rented our space and the lady who was she was the owner landlord, she retired and we took over the whole building. We don't own it. There was there's another kind of a guy who doesn't live here and has only been here twice owns it, but we took over the lease for the whole building. It's probably close to 10,000. Eh, maybe it's more, maybe it's 12,000 square feet. Damn. It's really big. Yeah. It's a, it's a very large building. And so we took over maybe 15 to 2000 more square feet and rented the rest out. So at that time we we're like, what can we do with this, this extra space that we have? And Jonathan is like a real go-getter, you know, and he's like, oh, we could do this. We could do that. And Bill and I were like, okay, if you, if you want to do that, we'll pay for it. We'll support it. You know? So Jonathan kind of spearheaded the whole build the new studios thing. Interesting. No, it was great. Yeah. We hired a designer, John Brandt, to design the mastering studio and Jonathan built it all pretty much himself. But now I have a dedicated mastering room that sounds phenomenal. And so I've been doing a ton of work in here. You may laugh at this. <laughs> Every time I come to see my sisters-in-law in Colorado, I always forget until I get to their houses and I'm huffing it up the stairs. I'm like, why <laughs> am I so out of breath? And then I realize, oh, altitude, altitude. Right. So do you notice bands who come from out of town, are they affected by it? I don't think that they're affected so much by altitude per se as dehydration. It's very dry here, right? And right. so you have to drink a lot of water. And if you don't, that that affects you, like your ability to sing, getting headaches, whatnot. So I think you have to drink more water than people are accustomed to when they're here. If you get up to like 10,000 feet or something, that's obviously that's an effect, but we're at five. So it's, it's not terrible. And what about my arch enemy snow? How often does it snow there? <laughs> it's snowing outside right now. The weather here is crazy. I went golfing on Wednesday and it snowed on Thursday and it'll probably be 60 degrees on Sunday. I would say it snows here 10 times a year, 
but then maybe a day or two later, it'll be 60 or 70 degrees. It's, it's very unpredictable weather. I think there's supposed to be 300 days of sunshine a year here, so it's pretty nice. Wow. Huh. Yeah. What about cost of living? Cost of living is definitely going up in Fort Collins. We got voted as like the number one place to live in America with, I don't remember what magazine it was now, but this was in 2010 or 11. And so we've had tons of people moving here. So the city has gone up and the cost of houses has probably doubled in the last seven or eight years. So it's definitely go going up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's going yeah. up. Period. It's going up. It's going up. Yeah. I know you probably don't want to think about this, but do you ever think about retirement? I do think about retirement because I don't really have any retirement besides my royalties and, and all the gear that I own. I don't know when I would stop. I and mean, like I was saying earlier, I worked with Andy Wallace and he's like, he's got to be 70 now. And he's he doesn't work nearly as much as he used to, but he's still great. And then there's guys like Greg Calby, who's like one of the best mastering engineers in the world. He's probably 72 years old. So I feel like I would probably just keep doing this as much as I could until... I couldn't do it anymore. I don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. You talked about your wife being a high school teacher. I'm sure she's got her eyes on the future of retirement. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's counting down the years. My wife certainly talks about it all the time. And I just think, well, I want to keep working. I, I just don't see a life of, of stopping recording and sitting around watching TV. And no offense to you playing golf, but I can't yeah, play. Right. You know, I don't want to play golf every day. I just started golfing this summer. <laughs> That's a, but I I actually love it. But you're you're right. I feel the same way. I don't I don't want to work like I did in my 30s, which was like an insane person. I I don't think that's physically possible for me anymore. Mm -hmm. But I still love it. You like if I have a few days of, if I have more than two or three days off, I start going mental. I'm like, you know, I'm online watching videos of recording or you know whatever. Just I'm in it. <laughs> this is what I like to do. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Do you ever feel there's limitations as a result of living in Colorado to your career? I don't think so. I think the internet is a great equalizer. We work with bands from all over the world all the time via the internet. Sometimes they show up here. We did two bands from Brazil and one band from Chile last year. So people are coming from all over. They don't care where we're at. Now, when I think about places like Nashville or LA, 
it's possible I might get more work if I live there. Just, you know how it is. It's like you bump into people and they're like, oh, that guy, right. He still works. Cool. Let's send him some, like people just forget. They have to be reminded that you're alive and you, you know, you're still around and then they'll send you something to do. And I think that might happen more if I was like, go out and hang out with people all the time guy in Nashville or LA, but I see, yeah, I do okay here. <laughs> yeah. But you also, between you and Bill, I mean, in the, in the work you've done together, you guys have got out a lot. Yeah, we have got out a lot and he still tours. So he's still bringing newer bands on tour. And a lot of times when he does that, he'll be like, oh, this band opened up for us on the last tour. We're going to do their next record, you know, kind of thing. That definitely helps out a lot. But the Descendants have been around for so long and they're still making music. So people are completely aware of us if they're a Descendants fan. So we still get work from that. Let's kind of project out five, 10, 15 years. Right. You and Bill are who are aging. and Who are getting old. Who are See getting old. gray hair? Yeah. No, dude, <laughs> look at me. Oh, yeah. You're looking good. I'll be 50, uh, 50 on uh, Tuesday of next week. Oh, all right. Happy birthday. You got me by a year. I'll let you know how it is. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Tell me how that 50 is. Sorry. No, no, no. How, but yeah. what's what's the plan for the other guys who are younger in the building? What do you see happening in, in 5, 10, 15 years? Wow. 15 years. That's... <laughs> I'm not sure, really. None of them have expressed any interest, per se, in like becoming a studio owner. Uh I think that, or leaving, everybody here is sort of in the same boat. We all love to make music and don't really have any desire to do anything else. So as long as they're able to continue doing what they love, I feel like they're going to stay here. You know, if they wanted to become an owner at a certain point, I guess it would be a possibility. We're all still kicking and, and making records without a real plan to stop right now. Yeah. What about work-life balance for you? And you've got, you've got a wife. Do you have any kids? Yes. Two kids. Ah. I've got a stepdaughter who's 24 and a daughter who's 15. Ooh, teenager in the house. Yeah. Teenagers are fun, right? Oh <laughs> man. I don't know. I, I have a 13 year old who's going to be 14 pretty soon and he's already showing asshole tendencies. Right. Well, just think about how back to how you were. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and go like, oh, yeah, I was actually worse than that. This is okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I deal with it. Yeah. Like, let's say when Bill and I were kind of like in around 2002 or so, his band all, they didn't break up, but they sort of, they just kind of took a little bit of a hiatus, if you will. And Bill and I were just kind of like, okay, well, this is what we're doing now. We're doing this studio thing. So let's do the studio thing. So we were working like madmen years on end every day. I want to say in 2007, I think I worked 92 days in a row without a without a day off. And I went to Hawaii. It was the day I got off. But I mean, we used to do stupid stuff like that. And it wasn't so much as to say like we were trying to like get somewhere, but that's kind of what we decided we were going to do. And people kept coming and coming and coming. And we did that for probably 10 years. And at probably the end of that 10 years, I had gained like 40 pounds. And I was like, when I was in college, I was a swimmer. So I was in shape and thin. And I kind of took a look at myself and I was like, what the hell happened? I got to do something, you know? So I, I went on a, it wasn't a full, well, it may have been a full life change. I lost about 45 pounds and I joined a CrossFit gym in 2009. I've been doing that ever since. So pretty much every day, 
maybe four days a week, I go to do, I do CrossFit in the morning and I don't come to work till noon. And I try to get off at like seven and come home and see my family. And just the changing of the business and the changing of like my attitude and the amount of work that I've done in the past sort of allows me to do that where I don't have to work 10 hours a day anymore. Like I don't need to prove it that to anyone. And I feel like through exercise and just experience, I can get my work done in six or seven hours if I just hunker down and don't take real big breaks, which is what happens when you when you work a 12-hour day, you're not working 12 hours. You're working eight hours. So you're taking a dinner. You're taking big breaks because you're bummed that you're there that long and you end up being there that long. <laughs> so like if you just go, hey, we're going to get this done in seven hours, then that's what we're going to do. And you get the same amount of work done. So that's kind of, I haven't like made it like a, a statement to anyone really. Like I only work 12 to seven, but generally that's kind of where I like to live my, my work life Yeah, in that zone. Sometimes it's less, sometimes it's more, but that's definitely helped. And I'd never took weekends off ever or holidays really up until probably maybe like six or seven years ago. And I've kind of slowly, but surely made a conscious thing to be like, I'm taking the weekend off. I'm taking the holiday. I'm taking more, I keep taking more and more time off, just being like, nobody needs to make a record that bad. We can all wait. We'll get this done. <laughs> it always gets finished one way or another. I'm not staying till 12. I don't care. You know, like just the, you know, the more you do it, you get better at doing it and you just figure out what's more important to you. I think that's kind of where I'm at now. What is CrossFit? CrossFit is like, it's kind of a, it's kind of crazy, really. <laughs> it's an exercise program that you spend like an hour on a day and it, it combines like Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, gymnastics, running, rowing, jump rope, kettlebells, all of those different things. And it kind of combines them all and you do it at a, like a really high intensity for between like two minutes and 20 minutes in different orders that sometimes make no sense at all. Hmm. My perception of it is it's, uh, there's a lot of outdoorsy people because there's, you know, a there's lot a of lot of outdoors. There yeah, is. There's a lot of things that, yeah, a lot of things to do outdoors, but I, I think that Boulder more than here is maybe like one of the fittest places in the universe, you know, or the thinnest people or something like that. People definitely get out and get outside and do things. But like I was saying, 10 years ago, I wasn't one of them. Was it the last five years, maybe even sooner than that, pot has become legal in the state of Colorado? Yes. Yes, it has. And how has that affected, to the best of your knowledge, how has that affected the economy of Colorado? And has that had any direct effect on the studio in a positive way? I would probably say positive to both of those. Obviously, there's more jobs and then the taxes go to the state and whatnot. So I, they're supposed to go to the schools. I'm not sure if they have yet, but if they do, it's probably going to be a lot of money it, once the feds figure that all out and it's not a cash-only business or whatever. But And obviously, a lot of bands partake in, in marijuana. So they're pretty stoked when they come out here if they're from out of state. We had one band show up and they went out and they bought a thousand dollar vape machine and they were just <laughs> vaping in the kitchen all day long. We love it here. It's just like neither Bill or I smoke weed. So it's like, we don't really care. It's kind of funny, but it's just kind of like, come on guys, can we get something done? You're like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So are there... Have you had any records that you thought, well, this is clearly being funded with pop money? <laughs> I think that there is actually, yeah. I mean, there's a couple guys I think that own dispensaries or grow places that were sort of 
down in Denver that we're funding some of the bands we've done. There's studios that have been funded by weed money. But the one negative I could say about the marijuana stuff is that when people are trying to find a new space to either practice in or build a studio in, all of the industrial spaces are gone. They're gone. They're just full of growers or so that's that's kind of one negative I think for for it. But other than that, I don't have any problem. It's probably positive. Yeah. I've heard of that before that the pot industrial complex goes around and it just it consumes all available potential studio spaces that one right. would look at. What a funny turn of events. <laughs> right. Oh man, I'm sure that there's, you know, so many bands and studio owners that just think, oh man, if they'd only make it legal. And now it's becoming a, a problem in an area that I don't think anybody foresaw. Right. Yeah. For the the potential new studio business, you got to look in different spots. So are there any things that we have not touched on that you were looking forward to having a chat about or bringing up that you thought was relevant? Anything I may have missed? We're having a 25th anniversary party tomorrow. Our studio wow. is 25 years old this year. Yeah, wow, so we're happy anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, so we're having a, a big show tomorrow night in town at a 900-person venue, which is very small for the acts that we had, but that's pretty exciting. And there's a local brewery in town called Odell's who actually made a beer for us. We love coffee here, so we made a coffee pale ale. Oh, I love coffee. And that guy, I tasted it yesterday. It was fantastic. We, they made 10 kegs of it. We're going to sell at our show and make some crowlers and whatnot. Wow. Congratulations. 25 years. Yeah, thank you. That's Ooh. amazing. Never never really would have thought of it was going to happen. Didn't plan on it. Just, just kind of happened. Just keep going. Do you have any uh, parting advice as a, an owner of a studio that's been in business for 25 years for others who are looking to do the same thing? Keep your overhead down. <laughs> But yeah, so we're lucky here. We found a space that was relatively cheap and is still very cheap. So we don't really have too much downtime here, but even if we did, it wouldn't be a problem. And I think if you can manage to somehow keep all your expenses down, you can weather the storms when there are some. Good advice, definitely. So people can find out more about you at the uh, Blasting Room's website, which is theblastingroom.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for everybody. Do you keep a separate website for yourself? No, we're all on that website. You can kind of see who works here and what we do and what rooms you can book or if you want to do mastering, you know, there's whatever you want to do, you can find out on that website. Well, fantastic, man. It was a pleasure to meet you and uh, love talking with you. Yeah, you as well. At some point, I will I will make it to Fort Collins and I will come and pay a visit to the studio. I'd love to to hang out with you and talk shop. So cool. until then, I will chat with you later and thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Jason Livermore here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. 
Want to thank everybody who worked on the show, including Anne-Marie Plow on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith there, introducing us in the warmest of ways. Spread the word, connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.